Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and this is part two with Irene Lyon. In this episode, you will learn what the first step is to experiencing joy. Let's face it, we could all use more joy, aliveness, and vibrancy in our life, but how do we actually get there? Mm, Listen in as we share that first step, which will be different than what we have been taught by the motivational and self-development groups. This podcast has four sections. Section one is how seemingly harmless inconsistencies during childhood can actually cause insecurities. Section two, the result of not addressing childhood inconsistencies. Section three, how to start that process of addressing those specific insecurities. And section four, the result that is possible. To help us with this podcast episode and make it real, I've invited Gingy to come and tell her story to you. She is a biology of trauma professional in training, but is also a mentor for the 21 day journey since taking it herself. Gingy found herself at a crossroads in life and let's just have her introduce herself. And then we will go right into section one with Irene Lyon on how even normal childhoods can result in trauma patterns in our nervous system. Hi, I'm Gingy and I live in Melbourne, Australia. I am a trauma-informed resilience and recovery practitioner and I work mostly with moms and their children. So growing up, I really thought that I had a normal childhood. I'm Sri Lankan by birth, but I have moved seven times to seven different countries and I thought that was really a blessing. I've always seen that as a blessing and never thought twice about all the changes that were in my life. I was blessed to have parents who loved me. I had a really good education and I came from a really close-knit, loving family. We are to this day. And so I didn't really think there was any trauma in my family. Having lived a pretty normal, as you say, upbringing, I had two major losses in my family. My father passed away and my brother passed away. And we carried on. Uh, I had already learned to keep carrying on in the face of overwhelm. But at that time, it rocked my world. And it really brought the reality of the world to me. But I still did carry on and I did not express it. And we still continued to be a really close family. And about seven years later, I was married and I fell pregnant. And there's nothing like the initiation into motherhood to make you address the things that you have not addressed. And for me, I came to the crossroads and it was right there. I was facing the possibility of 
ignoring all that was in my life or addressing it. We think about, you made a good example there, the home life and not knowing what to expect, always having to be on guard. I mean, this is where hypervigilance comes in. This is where, I mean, I'm going to say a bold thing, but most psychiatric disorders, and Bessel van der Kolk talks about this, they can be traced back to something that occurred that wasn't right, that was scary, that wasn't consistent. And so if we think about that and bear, bear analogy again, if you have two you know, parents who actually aren't abusing, you know, they really are trying to do a good job, but if they have differing opinions on how to raise young, you know, one parent is the one that sends the kid to the room and the other parent is the one that doesn't. That little one at that young age, when I'm like three, four, five, so confusing. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. well, I have to be this way with this person and this way mm-hmm. with this person because mm-hmm. I don't get love when I do that, but I get love when I do this. Mm-hmm. That is the start of a very anxious, non-trusting situation. Mm-hmm. And it's so fascinating because most of our maladies, I guess you could say, in mm-hmm. terms of relational troubles, troubles connecting, feeling, our emotions, letting things out, it can all be traced back to how we either were or were not treated with that that mama bear love, really. And it's, it's sad because it's actually quite simple. However, if you personally, if the person raising these children um, hasn't done their own work to heal the stuff that's kind of invisible and they might not even remember, it's a strange thing. It's like, oh, I want you to start working on yourself for something that you have no memory of. But trust me, it's there. Because you were brought up in Western civilization, all these things. You had two parents who had differing background. I mean, it's just, it's a given. Right, it's a given. There is something. <laughs> there's something. And I didn't think that there was something in my system. And my God, I... You know, as as my capacity grew, it's like, Jesus, yeah, my parents were super good to me. And there was a lot of conditioning that right. taught me how to do certain things based on what I saw, based on what was okay, not okay. It's almost as if, and I say this often, Amy, there's no one to blame. Everyone's to blame. Exactly. So in terms of parenting styles, when each of the parent has different parenting styles, I would think it was very different because my dad wasn't the typical dad. He, you know, culturally, because my dad, you know, bathed us and, you know, cleaned, you know, like washed clothes and did housework. And so um, in that sense, I didn't have stereotypical parents. And so I didn't think of it, uh, of analyzing it in that sense. And then all of a sudden, I remembered all the things that had happened that were seemingly not what you would call normal big trauma, but they had been shocks to my nervous system. So I remembered that at the age of four, my dad Uh, did his postgraduate studies in England. So he left, first of all. Then my mom joined him. So then my family, uh, like my brothers, brother and my sisters, we were looked after by my grandmother because my grandmother just lived next door, basically. So there wasn't a big shift in the location or anything of our household. But 
they were not there at a young age. You know, although Jinji saw her traveling and moving as a child as a positive experience, looking back, there were cumulative effects that she hadn't realized. She mentions tools that she uses now, and we're going to get to those in a bit. But I just wanted to highlight this point that she had a normal childhood and yet reached a point where she could either lean in and address the trauma patterns that she was seeing or keep living her life and pretend it wasn't there. So many of us, myself included, look back at our childhoods and feel that we don't have trauma. Maybe we had a great upbringing or maybe we had what we considered, well, a good enough upbringing, but not trauma. But we reach a point where we have to decide, oh, I'm seeing some things and am I going to lean in and press deeper or numb out, check out, tune out and say, this is as good as it gets for my life. What are other examples of ways that a normal upbringing, and that's a normal in quotations, a normal upbringing can still involve activation to the nervous system, experiences of overwhelm that we can be carrying around without realizing it. You know, especially as a child reaches adolescence, there are a lot of ways this cultural conditioning can set in and present itself. And that's what we're going to go into next in this section two with Irene Lyon, on the result of not addressing childhood inconsistencies. So, you know, when you think about a child or a a young uh, woman who's starting to say menstruate, I mean, the horror stories I've heard of what occurred Mm -hmm. when my female clients started to menstruate, the shame, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. pulling back um, as they started to become women it was clear that the fathers didn't know how to be with them feeling that sexual energy growing because they are not sexually mature. And so we've got this whole system that is so stunted in Mm -hmm. just letting the human being naturally express, Mm -hmm. whether it's something like bodily functions or emotions or creativity. And we've, we've just kind of put things like, okay, well, you can be creative when you go to art class and you can sing when you're in choir and you can scream when you're on a roller coaster, but if you're going to do those in my house, then I don't want you here, mm-hmm. right? But like, and so we get we compartmentalize all these things. You know, I've seen human beings be pretty crazy and pretty erratic in fun situations and healing situations, and we're not. We're also not like the animals, right? We have that animal physiology. Our autonomic nervous system has that, and then again, like I said, we have this higher brain. It is not normal compared to other animals in the animal kingdom, other mammals. I mean, look at what we've created. There's a reason why no other mammalian system on Earth has done that. And it's because we've got this complexity. And because of that complexity, we're not going to fully fulfill, I believe, what humans are supposed to do when we're living in that survival, right? Right. And we're not, we haven't healed those early traumas. I hadn't healed properly from each of those shocks and traumas to my body, to my psyche, and to my being. And so then not having dealt with that, I really and truly went into survival mode. And every day my goal was to get to the end of the day. So when the sun comes up, my day starts when the sun goes down is when that was my finish line. And so 
each day was a new day uh, where I needed to start again and continue for the next day. So it was really survival for the next 24 hours, the next 24 hours. So there was a time that that was all I knew was to get through the next 24 hours. And I remember going for a walk. The sun was shining. I was out and all I was doing was crying all the way on my walk and all the way back. I probably frightened all the walkers that was that were out enjoying a beautiful sunny day. But that's all I did was cry and cry and cry, thinking, is this what my life is like? Jinji found herself at a point where she wondered, is this all life can be? I've been at that place. Sometimes we do. We find ourselves at a point where we are wondering, is this all life will be? Have you ever found yourself at a point where you were wondering that? Is this as good as it gets? We all have patterns, patterns of survival, patterns that have served us. And yet even looking back, we may not see any big life events that justify the way that we feel or justify the survival patterns that we see ourselves continuing to carry out as an adult. And this is where this understanding is so vital and important. When we find ourselves in these places asking these kinds of questions, we can realize we can actually have experiences in our lifetime that caused overwhelm and stored trauma and we didn't know that it was happening. I teach that trauma is not an event. Trauma is not the event. And if we're looking for events in our life, we are going to miss a lot of the stored trauma. Trauma is an experience of overwhelm in the body. Too much too fast or too little for too long, but overwhelm of what's going on that we can't process it in the moment. Jinji found herself at a very low point we can look at our present day life and know that, ah, we have some stored trauma. And the great news is we can then move into action and figure out what to do with it. And this, my friends, is the first step to bringing more joy into our life. That shift is still trying to be figured out in that realm. You know, mm-hmm. I left fitness and nutrition because I was, I felt like I was knocking my head against a brick wall because the reason why people couldn't take care of themselves and be driven yes. to be vigorous with their bodies and prepare mm-hmm. food and keep their house clean, get to appointments on time, like all the stuff that coaches would work with people on, not a lack of knowing or even behavior. Mm-hmm. Behavior could be taught. But what happens at New Year's resolutions time is those behaviors are so exciting. I'm going to have this new behavior, which is really this new routine, which is this new exercise thing. But if the behavior is being tarnished by the biology that doesn't know how to internally motivate and be intrinsic, it's just going to fall off. And we know that it falls off. I'm sure there's many studies that show the falling mm-hmm. off of routines at the beginning of the new year. So first of all, the nervous system somatic work, it, it really needs to be a decision of this is how I want to work with my body. doesn't mean you might not go see a doctor or a dentist or anything like that. You still got to take care of 
your stuff from that level. But the thing that I always start with, with somatic work, is actually education. Yes. And it goes back to what we said about 20 minutes ago, this higher brain. Because if you have someone, hypothetically again, who's learning how to work with the somatic sensations, well, they're all somatic, but the sensations in the body, the tightness in the chest that they know is what triggers their anxiety, that then triggers their guts to void too quickly and all these things. If a person doesn't understand what that is, mm-hmm. it's very easy to ignore it and do something, do a behavior to get rid of that terrible feeling. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we really get into working at the somatic nervous system level and we know we've, we've accepted, yes, I probably had some bad stuff that happened to me. Either you know or you don't know, it doesn't matter. Something happened that puts your system into some form of fight, flight, or freeze in the autonomic nervous system, there needs to be this apprenticeship of, so you might notice that when you start to do this exercise that Irene or Amy are giving you, one day you might feel great, and the next day you might go into full-on panic, and that's okay. And a person That would be what? normal. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm going to do the same thing five days in a row, and I'm going to get a different response. Yep, that's how it works, because mm-hmm. the nervous system is fluid, and yep. it cycles between parasympathetic and sympathetic. I'm simplifying there, but that's how it works. And so you start with education because if you don't, it's going to be tough to keep going when things yes. get hard because it will get hard. So and how I like to yeah. explain to people is it's, it's the decision to leave the need to always understand something with your frontal cortex. Yep. And be willing to get curious about the process that's happening in your body mm-hmm. rather than distracting, numbing, doing anything that will make that discomfort go away. We're going to actually get curious about it. Yep. And that's how we're going to use the mind is not necessarily to, to try to analyze it and understand it. Mm-hmm. because We're working with a very... Uh, I mean, we're working with the subconscious limbic system mm-hmm. that the frontal cortex will not always be able to understand. No. But, but the principle is, is rather than avoiding it and trying to make it go away, we're actually going to lean into it and get really curious about it and see what happens. And then uh, meditation came into my life and the quietening of the mind, but now looking back, it was more the probably the breathing allowed me to wait for the next step. You know, you're thrown that lifeline and one by one, the lifelines came through and each of those lifelines kind of made a profound difference in my life, I think. And so... The, I did yoga nidra, the visualization, all of those things. They were small things, but they were big things. And just being around people, I think for me, was it was activating because I was in survival mode and in overwhelm. But then the part of me that loved the connection found strength to be able to overcome the survival mode that I was in. So 
for me, when I think about my life, there have been so many times where it would have been easier to say it's all too difficult and to give up or say I, I can't get it right, so it must not be for me. I think the most important thing that I always feel that has been my North Star for me is that you need to keep moving forward, even if it's one inch. Because if we stand still, then we are in the same situation and we have uh, allowed an opportunity to go by. So for me, I think the most important thing in terms of the hope that I have in my heart for myself, I think, is that we are always inquiring and that ability allows us to always ask, okay, what else? How can I do something differently? How can I approach this differently? And it can be such a simple thing as waking up and saying, today, I have nothing to do other than to accept who I am and the fact that I have the ability to choose and like make a different choice today. And that different choice will then move us forward in whatever path we have chosen. And no wrong step is ever written in stone. We have always got the ability to change what we do when things go wrong. And so there is always such, such hope for change, such hope for healing and love and joy and laughter because we always have the choice of how we utilize a moment. I have been pushed to the limit, but then I'm here now being able to shine the light for other people because I know that there is a possibility for change. If you do one small thing, that one thing will lead you to the next and the next and the next. I love to hear how Jinji shares that there's so much hope, so much laughter and so much joy because this is the same thing that I have found. And as we have to dive in and address these trauma patterns, we have to do this before we're able to experience that increase of capacity for joy, of the capacity for aliveness and vibrancy, or else we experience it as vulnerable emotions and we shut down. Joy can actually be a vulnerable emotion and our bodies cannot experience joy until we help it feel safe to do so. I have seen this happen so many times where people start leaning in and trying to process trauma, but first they have to bring in that felt sense of safety, that felt sense of support for their body. It's called regulation. Irene shares about why sometimes it is hard for people to be curious and lean into the trauma patterns, the uncomfortable patterns that they see in their life. And Block the beauty of the somatic work and the results that can happen afterwards. But first, let's look at how we can start experiencing and creating a new presence 
aliveness and joy in our life. Exactly. And then there's a caveat to that, because if someone had a lot of early trauma, like birth trauma, preemie trauma, surgical trauma, um, mama was scared in, when you were in utero, so you got all her stress chemicals over and over, what we would classify as preverbal trauma, it might be hard for someone to be curious. With Very hard. And mm-hmm. so that's where the next kind of step comes in, is that there needs to be a, what I call a building of capacity. Thank you. Thank you. And building of capacity is so tough to describe intellectually. So I've just said you've got to understand the theory, and now I'm saying you can't understand this with theory because it comes with practice. Right. And so some of the classic things I would teach um, that I've learned primarily through Kathy Kane and her somatic practice work involves a lot of touch, mm-hmm. a lot of intention, Yes. A lot of working with the stress organs, like the kidney adrenal, mm-hmm. the gut, the brain stem, but also the skin, the fascia. I mean, the interesting thing is everything is a stress organ when we're under threat. The right. heart responds, the fluids respond, the fascia responds, even the bone responds. And this and is so why we say that the nervous system drives everything, like the yeah. nerve Go to every single little cell in your entire body. So if you have imbalances there, if you are finding yourself in that survival mode more frequently than not, like every cell in your body is going to be having this danger response. Exactly. And depending on the person, like some people feel things more in their gut. Some people get an autoimmune condition. Some people are more prone to mental illness. And and so there's this, this interesting thing where, again, we also have this uniqueness. We have predisposition depending on our ancestry and what they were subjected to and how they had to cope with blah, blah, blah. And so here we are trying to build this capacity, and it might be something as simple as learning how to just feel your body against the chair you're sitting on. Right. It, you'd be surprised how many people don't do that until I say, what's it like to feel the chair under your pelvis? Right. Or are you it's interesting aware? that you bring up that exercise because it was at the the last advanced training that I did, and yeah. uh, Doctor Ian had us guide guided us through this exercise, and that exercise put me in the freeze, right? Like just uh, like that, <laughs> you know. And so these are the types of things that that can happen with this kind of work is that you're working with something, and boom, it's right there, and there's you just tapped into some major trauma pattern in your nervous system. Exactly. And it will show up. It will show up. And so in an instance like that, it's like, whoa, to be able to then feel that, mm-hmm. then go put your, then you put your intellectual hat on and go, whoa, this is a, this is a shutdown response that's coming up right now. Wonder why. <laughs> I noticed that all of a sudden my mm-hmm. string has gone off and I feel a little floaty. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> the capacity to be able to, okay, I'm here. But you can't also talk yourself out of it. Right. And, again, this is where, for those who are brand new here, they're going to be like, she sounds crazy what she's talking about. Because when I work with my students, we take weeks and weeks and weeks and minutes and hours doing basic things Mm -hmm. like sensing that, being able to connect with our environment, being able to just put our hands on a joint Mm -hmm. and feel. Because I could say, oh, just put your hand on your wrist. Like, eh, whatever, that's no big deal. 
But when the intention is driven and the instruction is laid down in the way that it's taught with really solid somatic language, polyvagal language, the nervous system language, when the teacher is in their own body as they're teaching it, even if it's a recording, I've found, it like pierces through yes. time and space in a way. And I'll have people say, I can't believe just touching my wrist made me cry. I can't believe touching my wrist brought so much joy. I can't believe touching my wrist made me want to scream out bloody murder to my mother who held my arm too tight when I was young, right? And again, it's not about the wrist necessarily, but it's about the structure. And then from that, I leave that. I'm like, okay, well, can you take that same intentional, caring, direct, attuned touch to your shoulder or your ribs or the jaw or your knees or whatever it might be and play with it? Because essentially when we've had, whether it's a big trauma or lots of these little micro traumas that we were talking about earlier, the physiology, the somatic system, it slowly starts to deaden. Yes. I liken it to like a coloring book that has no color in it yet. Mm. It's like there's there's no color and it's a little, it's not even that sharp, the image. Mm-hmm. So as we build capacity, we're literally creating more solid lines, we're coloring in, and we're bringing more vibrancy and vitality to the system. And as you grow capacity, people will often say everything just looks so bright. More vivid. Mm-hmm. More vivid. And I can see the three-dimensionality of what's around me. I'm not bumping into things in the same way. I'm driving better. I'm not getting into accidents in the same way. I'm seeing a danger come to me faster because I'm more attuned to my environment. It's not a hypervigilance. It's a healthy quality of our our spidey senses. Yeah, it's an aliveness. So when I was doing the 21-day journey and when we did the back support, That was the clincher for me. My back for all my life had been crying out for support. When I look back now, I realize being so responsible, being the eldest child, I was the eldest of the girls, so I took my role really seriously. And being dependable, being the perfectionist and being the doer, All of these things meant that I had to stand upright and I never knew that there was a way to soften in to the rigid roles that my body had to then kind of be a buffer against. And so when I did the back support, it was unbelievable that sense of being able to lean in to my body that they are able to let go and lean against something or to have that support was unbelievable. I can remember crying in the shower. But for me, that was an amazing, amazing exercise and such a simple one, but so profound. But I have to say, each of the somatic exercises has played a huge role in helping me to befriend and support my nervous system. But the back support was incredible for me. 
you know, as I had to find my way out of the lowest point for me in my health, both my physical health and emotional and mental health, I found that there is an essential sequence. And I teach this essential sequence in the 21 day journey. First, we need a felt sense of safety. Then we need a felt sense of support. Safety is what the trauma response needs. Support is what the stress response needs. Both of these steps have to do with actually feeling our body and connecting with our body through what I call somatic work. Somatic meaning the body, the tissues themselves, not our mind and our thoughts. In fact, the very first exercise I teach in the 21 day journey, as Genji mentioned, was tracking the nervous system and actually figuring out what the different states in your body actually feel like. How can you know if right now your body is in a trauma response state or in the stress response state or in parasympathetic? You need to know these things. You know, the third step after all of these things, third step, meaning we've created that felt sense of safety. That's first step. The felt sense of support is the second step. The third step is when we get to step into expansion and joy. See, that's what we get wrong so often is first we need to connect with our bodies and help it to feel safe. When was the last time that you actually felt safe in your body? I have to say that there are many who go through my 21 day journey and they didn't even know that they didn't feel safe in their bodies. And so this is the first step is actually connecting with our bodies, learning for ourselves which state our body is in, learning how to shift that. And then we can fully step into expansion and joy in our life. That's bringing a bit of tears. And I really, truly love what I'm doing. I've told my husband that I've found the thing that I'm called to do. I'm so lucky because I found it in my lifetime. My mom said, wherever we reside, We need to leave it in a better place than when we came into it. I've taken what she said uh, with a bigger responsibility, I think, and I've said I want to change the world to make it a better place than when I came into it. And I think being a mom allowed me to do that and my practice allows me to do that. I've told my husband you'll have to cancel my appointments the day I die because I'm not looking for a day to retire because I have found what I want to do till the day I die. And um, I'm really thankful to have found Dr. Amy's work because it's not just given me knowledge, it's given me a community. I think it's given me joy and calmness And so before I used to look at, you know, my accreditations and my learning as, oh, I need to prove that I have this knowledge. But now it's about, I have this knowledge, how can I apply it? So I think that's the biggest change that having done the 21 day journey, done the all parts of me and then gotten into the accreditation program, that was the biggest change that it made was that I actually have enough knowledge. I now need to apply it in a meaningful way. If I had looked at it separately, I would have said, oh, I'm able to talk about this and I'm able to talk about this and I'm able to talk about this. But by putting it all together, 
under this one umbrella and seeing it from the lens of the nervous system has really allowed me to make a bigger impact than if I had addressed everything separately. I don't think I could have done the work that I need to do if I had not done the 21-day journey as a practitioner. I don't think I could do the work in an impactful way if I had not done the accreditations and brought all that knowledge together. It felt so comfortable. And this is me when I started the 21-day journey. I would go into overwhelm every time I had to speak. Then to come around and be a mentor and hold that space and be seen by other people, the capacity of my nervous system had actually increased. And that was the test of my nervous system was becoming a mentor. I feel really comfortable now doing this work, which is so beautiful. The important thing to remember is that our path to joy is not through understanding and analyzing our past, but actually that we just look to see what is showing up in our present day today. Are there insecurities that are showing up? Are there uncomfortable feelings showing up? These all point back to experiences of overwhelm in our past, whether we think or recognize that we had trauma or not. We can have good parents. We can have good upbringings, but that still resulted in anxieties, confusion, overwhelm as a young child. Remember that trauma is anything that for any reason at that time overwhelmed our system, overwhelmed our ability to process and understand what was happening. We do not need to remember or know of specific events to recognize stored trauma in our body. We can look at what is showing up in our present day today. And once we recognize stored trauma, we need to remember that it requires a specific approach, not knowing the essential sequence. That's when we can get lost on our way. We can take longer on our healing journey than what is necessary. Let's get to the joy. Yeah. Let's get to the joy. Joy flows out of looking first at the uncomfortable body sensations rather than ignoring them and trying to, Oh, just be positive and say affirmations of experiencing joy. There are no shortcuts to this work. The only path to joy is through the journey into one's own body and repairing those places where confusion, inconsistencies, and overwhelm have been stored and have robbed us of our joy today. Now, you can join me for a 21-day journey, or if you're looking for another person or program or approach, just remember the essential sequence because that will help guide you. The essential sequence is safety first for the trauma response. Support secondly for that stress response. And then we step into joy and expansion. And that's how you will be able to take charge of your trauma healing journey and get to the joy that you were meant to have. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I recommend that if you did not listen to part one of Irene Lyon, that you go back and listen to that part one. And I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining me today. 
If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey, and you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.